We're looking today at the second time Joseph's brothers come uh, to him in Egypt to purchase grain from him. Last week, we, we looked at the first interaction between them as the brothers came and stood before him. And, and remember, this has been 20 years where Joseph has suffered. 20 years where he suffered. They sold him to be a slave. They sold him to be a slave into a foreign country. In his slavery, he was falsely accused and he was a prisoner in a pit. It was his brothers who caused him all of this suffering. And last week we saw, here now, 20 years later, his brothers come and his brothers are in an extremely vulnerable position. And they come and they bow down before him. And he has the opportunity, he has the motive, and he has the power to destroy them. Yet over 20 years, Joseph has learned to trust in the providence and the plan of God. And so last week, that's what we noted, is that that, that his mature understanding of the providence and the plan of God was allowed him to keep his composure when, when possibly everything in him was screaming, payback, payback, payback. And it gave him the opportunity, his mature understanding of God's providence allowed him to give God a time to work in his brother's life. And we saw that he he entrusted himself to God, but he didn't necessarily immediately entrust himself to his brothers. He tested them. And that's what we looked at, and that's kind of where we're at still in the middle is this big question that lingers over these chapters is the question of whether his brothers have actually changed. Have his brothers changed? Is Joseph, he's hiding his identity from them and he's not entrusting himself to them. And the question that lingers over these chapters is, has his brothers changed? Have his brothers changed And it leads me to a question more broadly. Do people change? Do people change? What do you think? Do people change? How? That actually opens up a whole other set of questions. How do people change? What, What motivates people to change? What does it take before people actually change? I have a five-year-old. And that means, by definition, I watch Frozen a lot. I took the wrong clicker. There was two of them up here. By definition, I watch Frozen a lot. And uh, there's this scene in the movie Frozen that drives my wife crazy. And it's, uh, they go to these, uh, what are these things called? Do you know what these things are called? They're freaky little rock trolls. And uh, they're supposed to be the source of all wisdom to the life of this young couple. They do their premarital counseling, in a sense, to uh, whatever these people's names are. Elsa, and what's the dude's name? That's not even Elsa, that's, what's there? Oh man, I need to watch Frozen more carefully. But in the midst of this song in which they're giving this young couple advice, they sing this line that drives my wife crazy, We're not saying you can change him because people don't really change. 
I, I hope that's not true. I don't think that's true. It's not true. I, it can't be true. It would be really bad news. Really bad news. Like, why come to church? <laughs> Maybe some of you guys are asking that already, but why come to church if the message is, forget about it, we're not saying you can change, people don't really change. We're here, in sense, in part, because we believe that people change all the time. People do change. And while sometimes people may change for mysterious reasons, sometimes we can see patterns in the whys and hows of how people change. And, and listen, it is good news that people change. It's good news for us, personally, because I know I need to change. I need a lot of transformation. It's good news for you, because guess what? I'm looking at you guys, and you need a lot of transformation as well. We all do. It's, it's good news for marriages. It's good news for families. It's good news that people change. And so, that's what we're going to look at. And that's the key, it's a key question in these chapters as these brothers stand before Joseph. And here's the crucial moment. Have they changed? And Lord, I pray that as we look through this passage, you open up our hearts, our eyes, and open up our eyes to see you here. And how we and those around us can change. In your name we pray. Amen. This, this is kind of from last week still, but a first thought that, I, that I comes out of this passage is that people change. Change is possible when perceived desperation is greater than anticipated difficulty. As long as I think that it's more difficult to change than how desperate I am, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to seek it. Change is difficult. Like, it's hard to change. Like, some of you guys know or at least could see, I lost a significant amount of weight late recently and it was difficult to do that i had to actually like get up and work out and do my diet and all that type of stuff and it's difficult and change you will not change if the anticipated difficulty is greater than your perceived desperation you got to get to the point where your perceived desperation is greater than your anticipated difficulty if the anticipated difficulty looms larger than your desperation if it looms larger than my desperation to change, I'm not going to change. Joseph may have been surprised to see his brothers back in Egypt. Remember when, when they left him last, he put their money back in their sacks. He actually made it more difficult for them to return because his first visit, he, he hid his identity from them and he said, you're spies, you're spies. And he falsely accused them of being spies. And, and he let them go. He kept Simeon, their one brother, behind. But he let them go. But he put their money in their sacks. So now it made it even more difficult. If they returned to Egypt, they, 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 they may be not only accused of being spies, but they would be, they, there would be rightly evidence that they were thieves as well. And so they returned to Egypt because they're desperate. They've run out of food for a second time. And so this is what Judah says to their father in a verse we looked at last week. Judah says, send the boy with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. Judah recognizes the desperation of their situation is they are going to starve unless they actually go back and face 
Joseph. And so he's ready to face the difficulties that await in Egypt. And Joseph surprises them. By sending a message when they arrive, Joseph sends a message that they are to dine with him, to bring them into their house. And this actually terrifies them because they think it's a setup. Joseph is being overly friendly with them and they immediately think, oh man, they're going to slaughter us. He's, he's, he's bringing us in here in order to take advantage of us. It's like when I cross the border and I have an overly friendly border guard. I don't want an overly friendly border guard when I cross the border. I want somebody to look at my passport and wave me through. I do not want to make small talk with the border guard. And the brothers come to Joseph's house and he invites them in for a meal. And I can imagine them just saying, look, look, man, we just want the food and we want to go. And they, get, they actually get terrified. And so the servant actually um, responds to them and assures them it's, it's not a setup. The servant actually says to them, uh, in verse 23, he says one word, he says shalom. He uses the Hebrew word to them and says, shalom, all is at peace here. He tells them there's not a setup, they have nothing to fear, but that God had placed the money in their sacks. And even more than, he brings Simeon out to them, so the brothers are reunited, and even more, he shows great hospitality to the travelers by offering them water, washing their feet, feeding their animals. They're being treated as esteemed guests, and they must have been laughing at themselves over how difficult they thought this was going to be. However, the most difficult tests were yet to come. At this point, uh, Joseph arrives, and he still conceals his identity from them, and he plays the part of an Egyptian he asks them about their father, and he can't contain himself as he sees his brother, his, own, his full brother Benjamin. And he actually has to leave the room looking for a place to weep. He's like overwhelmed with emotion when he sees Benjamin, and he's got to leave. And the question still lingers, have his brothers actually changed? Is Joseph going to reveal himself to his brothers and entrust himself to them? So Joseph has them seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to their youth. And, and they're all just from Reuben over here to Benjamin over here. They're sitting, and it would have been shocking. How would he have known their birth order? The brothers must have thought, this is a very powerful man. He knows about our family. He knows even our ages. But then even more provocative is that Benjamin, the youngest son, the only supposed remaining son of Rachel, is given five times as much as any of the other brothers. Now, a lot of people thought, what, what is this? Is this Joseph being exuberant? Like seeing Benjamin and being exuberant? Oh yeah, just take some more food and take some more food. I'm thinking that there's probably reason to believe it goes beyond that. Like, what set off this whole thing with Joseph and his brothers in the first place? Way back 20 years ago, what set the brothers off? What set the brothers off is Joseph being singled out for favoritism, being given that, you know, that coat of many colors. And his brothers in their jealousy and their brothers in their rage, they hated him. They hated him. They tore him down. They destroyed him. And they got rid of him. And so what Joseph is doing, in, a, in as little way as he can, is I believe he's resetting up the same parameters 
as 20 years ago that drove his brothers to jealousy over him. He's kind of setting them up again. And now Benjamin comes and, and Joseph lavishly gives him this special treatment. Yet, perhaps surprisingly to Joseph, the brothers display not a hint of jealousy at this time, but they continue to drink and be merry. And so Joseph sends them off again the next morning. He has his servants fill their bags and send them off again with their own money in their sacks. But this time they put a silver cup belonging to Joseph in Benjamin's sack. And they travel a short distance from the city. Joseph's servant tracks them down and accuses them of stealing the cup. Look at the brothers are so convinced. They're so convinced that they are innocent that they say that if the cup is found among them, they say, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. Verse 9. Whichever of your servants is found with the cup shall die, and we also, all of us, will be my Lord's servants. So, so get this, they pronounce the death penalty upon whichever of them the, the cup is found. Now, this is why they're so dismayed. They, the, the, the servant searches beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the, of course, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And look at how dismayed they are. When, when Joseph was presumed to have died, you know, obviously the brothers didn't shed a tear. They're the ones who did it. But they, 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 bring, uh, the, they bring Joseph's coat back to their father. And Jacob tears his clothes in mourning and in, in grief and in horror and terror over what's happened to his son. And now all the brothers do. All the brothers tear their clothes. They're dismayed. And they return to Joseph's house. And this time, they don't just bow before Joseph. That's the vision that they bow before Joseph. This time, they can't even bow before him. They fall at his feet. They fall at his feet. They fall before him to the ground. And then Joseph informs them. Listen. You all are free to go. I'm going to deal with this one. He, Benjamin, he will be my servant. The rest of you are free to go. And what he's doing there, so think about this test that Joseph is setting up. First, he gives favoritism to Benjamin. The same favoritism that drove the brothers to envy and murder 20 years ago, he reproduces that. And then he says, you all can be free to go if only your brother will remain a slave in Egypt. He's giving them the exact same test and parameters of this test that they failed 20 years ago. And he's bringing them back to this. And I can only imagine that, that Joseph probably presumed that his brothers would be, all right, we're out of here. He probably presumed his brothers don't change. His brothers say, that sounds good. We'll be on our way, leaving Benjamin behind. And then Joseph probably would have revealed himself to Benjamin. And he and his real brother, the only brother he loved him and he loved, they could just start their life anew in Egypt together. Like that's the most likely outcome. Yet to everyone's surprise, Judah steps up and delivers. It's actually the longest speech in Genesis. It's one of the most impassioned speeches in the Old Testament. And his speech really gets to the heart of this, this change that's happened first in Judah and the other brothers as well. And there's a couple of things I want to bring out about this speech of Judah's and point to us about 
how Joseph can see that his brothers have changed. First, change is possible when a person truly owns all of their sin. It's the first part about Judah's amazing response is that he makes no excuses. Now, did the brothers actually steal the money? Now, did Benjamin actually steal the cup? No. Could Judah possibly have mounted a defense of his innocence? He possibly could have. What's really amazing here is that Judah actually, though innocent of this one charge against him, Judah recognizes his, his, the full extent of his sin and his guilt. Look what Judah says. He says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now what is Judah doing here? Is he confessing to a crime that neither he or his brothers committed? I don't think so. I think Judah understands finally, and I don't know if this is for the first time or not, but Judah understands that even though they didn't perhaps steal the cup, God is nevertheless holding them accountable for their many sins. Uh, when they were in prison, remember a couple chapters ago, in chapter 42, when Joseph held them in prison, this is what the brothers said to each other. They said to each other, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother Joseph in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And so Judah is recognizing that even though he maybe not, they didn't steal the cup, Judah recognizes he is guilty of sin. That he has failed this test. And that he and his brothers have been living in borrowed times. And that the depths of their sins against God and their brother Joseph were now being called into account. And I would say this is the first step to true change. Truly owning all of your sin. Not sugarcoating it. Not minimizing it. Not downplaying your sin. Not shifting the blame on circumstances or others. Not blaming bad luck or biology. It's truly recognizing the mess that you yourself have made of your own life on the basis of your sin. Second, Judah understands now finally how they have hurt others. The second thing that Judah reveals in his speech is that he has finally understood how much the actions of the brothers have impacted those around them, particularly Jacob, their father. Judah mentions in this speech of Judah's, he mentions his father 13 times. Like 13 times in three paragraphs, he mentions his father. And he specifically notes how much his father loved Benjamin and how much it would destroy his father. If, like He's saying, like, if I don't bring Benjamin back, my dad's dead. My dad is going to die if I don't bring Benjamin back to him. He says in verse 44, he says, Therefore, as soon as I come to my servant your father, the boy's not with us, as his life is bound up in the boy's life. As soon as he sees the boy isn't with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hair of our, your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. Now, remember, in the jealousy of their younger days, they didn't care about their father's love of Joseph. They didn't care of what they were going to do to Joseph, how it was going to hurt their father. 
It says, actually, it says they, they maybe started. I don't know. It says, uh, back then it says at their time, this is when they returned with the, the, with the coat to their dad. And they, they said, is this, your, is this your son's? And Jacob recognizes, oh, a wild beast must have destroyed Joseph. It says, then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his sons many days. And look at this in 35. All his sons and his daughters rode up, rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to my son to show to my son mourning. And the father wept for him. These cats said all the sons rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I don't know, maybe that is where they understood that they had gone too far. Like, I, I had dealt with some sin in my life. And it was a recurring sin. Something that came up again and again from time to time. Habitual at times in my life. And what it took to actually get me to actually see my need for change was actually recognizing how it had hurt people close to me. Like you can think that your sin is private and you realize it's not. It never is. And when you recognize how it actually is hurting those around you. And I'm wondering about the, these brothers who, who were so callous as Joseph is screaming to them from the pit. And they bring home the thing to their dad and they say, is this, does this belong to your son? And then they're, they're, they see their father just break down in front of them, rips his clothes, puts the sackcloth on, won't eat, weeps for days, and they're trying to comfort him. And he says, I won't be comforted. I don't, I don't know if that's when they truly understood that they had gone too far. But, but regardless of that, Judah understands now how his sinful actions has hurt those around him. He understands how the actions he takes now will impact his father. But he goes beyond pleading with Joseph for the sake of his dad. He actually, this is the crazy part, he actually offers himself to be taken in Benjamin's place. Right? Judah, Judah truly owns the full extent of his sin and he understands how his actions have hurt his father and then he offers himself to Joseph in place of the boy. He says, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And this is the point at which it's evidence at least to Joseph that at least Judah has truly changed, that he's truly learned to love his father and his brother with a selfish love, selfless love. That he's willing to put himself on the line to actually lay down his own life and freedom for the sake of others whom he's wronged. In John 15, the New Testament, Jesus says, Truly, there's no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And Judah, and here's the crazy part, Judah has been horrific. When we are introduced to Judah, Judah is the one that says, hey guys, let's not kill him. We should make a buck off of him and let's sell him into slavery. And our next introduction to Judah is how he deceived his daughter-in-law over the course of decades. And took advantage of her. And Judah's horrific. Yet somehow he has learned what this type of love is. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. 
And he, and he offers himself, he, he makes every effort to set right what he has wronged. And, he, and he, he offers himself to Joseph. And this moves Joseph to one of the most climactic displays of emotion in the Bible. Joseph couldn't control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud and he wept so loudly, the Egyptians heard it. The Egyptians who he said, get away from me, go out from here. They heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph has witnessed true repentance in his brothers, true change, and it has totally, it totally breaks him. And I'll tell you what, when change happens in a person's life, it is a powerful thing. People who have, joy, people who have had falling outs can, can actually be reconciled. People that used to be sources of pain now bring you joy. And yet, the sermon is not done. Because I, I, I don't want to say I did a bait and switch with you, but I, I'm, did a, I'm doing a kind of a bait and switch with you today. And, and let me say this. Everything I've said so far is true. But it is not the full picture. Everything I've said so far is true. I, I, I don't believe that you will really change until your desperation grows beyond the level of your anticipated difficulty. And I don't believe that you will change or I will change until we truly see the sinfulness of our actions. And I don't believe we'll change uh, until we recognize how we've hurt other people. And I, and I don't think we'll really change unless we're willing to, to at least try to seek to make things right. But I, I will say this. I've kind of given you a bait and switch with this sermon. Because you can do all those things and you'll not truly transform. If, we, if I just stop the sermon right here, I, what I just told you is no different than what you will hear in a self-help seminar or in a 12-step program. Everything I said was true, but it's not the full picture. And if I left now, you would leave hearing true things, but actually being deceived because the picture the story of Judah and Joseph goes so much deeper than this that the true story of Judah and Joseph is that there's a greater love there's a greater substitution and there is a greater salvation and yes there is a greater transformation that the story of Judah points and I want to tell you about this because the Bible is not just a collection of stories about these people who lived long ago. In Sunday school, you hear the stories, and, and sometimes we present them as if it's just a bunch of stories of these people who lived far ago and in a different land, a different culture, and they did interesting things, and then we, we finish this story and we learn a different story next week. Well, that's not what the Bible is. The Bible's one story, and the Bible's about God and our relationship with Him and how we have failed Him, how we have thrown away that relationship with Him, and what He has done to restore a relationship with us, and what He is doing in us to transform us into His image. See, the Bible would tell us of a greater love. The Bible would tell us that there is a Father who loves His wayward children more than Jacob loved his son Joseph or more than Jacob loved his son Benjamin. 
It would tell us of a Father in heaven who loves us infinitely more than Jacob loved his sons. The book of Genesis, as soon as we turned away, as soon as we turned from God, as soon as we rejected Him, as soon as we rebelled against Him, the book of Genesis would proclaim to us that God in His love for us is providing and has a plan to provide a Savior for us. The book of Genesis would proclaim to us that we have indeed turned away from God in our sins, but a deliverer will come. This deliverer, will be unashamed to be called our brother. He will come forth from the seed of the woman. He will be a son of Abraham and through whom all the nations will be blessed. And as we, this is where we are in the story of Genesis, is that we are looking for this deliverer to come. And as we go on in the story, we will soon find that this deliverer actually is going to come from Judah. He's going to be a son of Judah. And just as Judah, for the sake of his father's love, offered himself as a substitute on behalf of his condemned brother, so this Savior, this Deliverer, this Son of Judah, for the sake of his father's love, has offered himself for us a substitute on our behalf for we who were condemned in our sins before God. Judah is a picture of his son, Jesus, who will come many thousands of years later offering himself for his condemned brothers and sisters for the sake of his father's love. Judah's a picture of the deliverer, Jesus Christ. The lion that we sang about of the tribe of Judah is the true deliverer. And so this is what so many people miss. This is what, we, we, this is what so easily we can miss if we try to change our life through self-help books self-help seminars, 12-step programs, is that it goes deeper. It goes deeper. And so let me just revisit some of these things that we talked about. Change is possible when perceived desperation is greater than anticipated difficulty. That's true, but it's not the complete picture. Because here, here's what we realize. We realize we are in a, in, a, in a far greater place of desperation than we thought. And we realize that we actually have no ability within us to truly bring about true and eternal change. We realize that we have cut 